Okay, and uh, we are live on this week's lecture, which is titled From Good to Better, Getting Beyond Good and Bad. So, um, as you know, we always start with a modern day issue. Actually, always start with dedications. I'd like to dedicate this class to um, the Fodafuashlemah of Rezel Bas Miriam and of Simcha Shterna Mezni Simcha Bas Tivya. And uh, they should live and have a long and happy life. And also for the memory of Miss Karen Azari's father. Um, Hirsch, Hirsch ben, ben Avraham, I think, I'm not sure. Okay, so um, we always start also with a modern day issue because when we study in Chabad, when we study mystical concepts, the main, the main goal is to be able to become practically a better person, to learn how to live a better life. So what is the practical issue from today's Ma'amar, today's mystical discourse of the Rebbe? And uh, here it is. The world says that when you lie with dogs, you get fleas. Rabbi Shneer Zalman of Liadi says in his Tanya, he says as follows, he who wrestles with, with a filthy person is bound to become soiled himself. And then there's one of my personal favorites is, even if you win the rat race, you're still a rat. In other words, you know, life, the rat race, you got to do what you got to do, but you end up being what? And uh, yeah, we need to struggle with our dark side. We need to struggle with dark forces, but by struggling with them, we automatically become just a bit more opaque. So what are our options, you ask? After all, the struggles to stay alive with a roof over our head, car in the garage, and to send our kids through college is nothing more and nothing less than a rat race. As the saying goes, idealism and altruism is good for the young, and then we have to start paying bills. And to fight the rat race will only leave us with fleas and filth anyway, which ultimately leaves us with the, with the oh well, if you can't fight them, you might as well join them attitude. So, what is the answer? How do we live life without, uh, you know, even if we win, how do we live life without ending up being a rat or getting just a little bit filthy because of the struggles in life or to wake up with fleas because we need to deal with dog situations? So, Chassidim have an answer that goes like this. And what that means is we need to rise ourselves up higher. Yes, life is a struggle. However, we get to choose at what plane of reality we are going to have this struggle. Are we going to be struggling on the plane of being a homo sapient or an animal? Or are we going to struggle between being a divine being or a homo sapient? So there's a choice here. There's a choice. What's going to be the battle? Is the battle I should be a mensch, a decent person, versus a vildechaya, a wild animal? Or is the mensch, I should be a godly person and not just a mensch? What is going to be our struggle? The modern day issue of this lecture is, how do we to rise ourselves up higher? This lecture is based primarily on a mimer the Rebbe delivered on the holiday of 12th of Tammuz in 1965, exploring the mystical secrets behind a verse in Bilam's failed curses. 
Okay, so let's get into the story, the Torah portion, so we can understand what Bilaam was doing, trying to curse the Jews, and what happened, and then we'll get into what the mystical focus here is. So this week's Torah portion takes off where last week's Torah portion left off. Last week's Torah portion left off that Moses conquered the uh, Sichon Melech Hezbon and Og Melech Bashan. He conquered the two countries of, of he, I'm sorry, Hezbon and Bashan. Now, the next nation on the line is getting nervous. And who's the next nation on the line? Is Moab. They didn't know that the Jewish people were not going to mess with Moab, being that they are the descendants of Lavan, who helped his uncle slash brother-in-law, Avraham. So, but they were nervous, and they're saying, okay, what's going on here? We need to prepare for this. The, the Jews are coming. The Jews are coming. What do we do? And basically, there's a medrash that tells us that Balak was confused. And just to understand this, I want to tell you a story that happened at America's West Point Academy. In the West Point Academy, they always teach. The, they teach the different strategies and logics of war based on wars that took place and what we've learned from them. So one kid that asked them, asked his, his superior, why don't you ever teach us anything from the wars of Israel? And his superior got very serious and said, because there is nothing we can learn from the wars of Israel. He says, what do you mean? And he says, the wars were not fought logically, strategically. There is a miraculous hand that's always involved with these illogical victories of Israel. Well, this Balak, who was the king of Moab, had the same attitude. Something's going on here. The Jewish people, they don't, they don't fight their wars the way we fight our wars. They don't win the way we win. What's going on here? What is Moses doing? So he came up with this beautiful plan, and he said, well, when Moses ran away from Pharaoh, he went to Midian. And over there, he met his future father-in-law and wife, Yitro, and his daughter, Zipporah. So he basically developed into leadership skills before he went back to Egypt to take the Jews out of Egypt. He developed in Midian. Let me go ask the elders of Midian who know about him. Ma Tivo, what is his, what's his secret? How does he function? So he, so he did. He went to the elders of Midian. And he asked them, Mativo, what is the traits of this person? And they answered him, En kocho elo His power is only in his mouth. Meaning that his way of working is spiritual warfare with the mouth, which is through the words of prayer and the words of Torah study. And by the way, parenthetically speaking, Let's go back a couple of generations. You remember when Jacob was stealing the blessings from, uh, from Isaac and he was incognito, putting on stuff on his hand to be hairy, uh, like his brother Esau. And Jacob and Isaac says, come close. And he touches him. And then he says this famous line, Hakol kol Yaakov Esau. The voice is the voice of Jacob, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And our sages tell us that really what, what Isaac was telling us is, each one of us, what is our weapons? What is our warfare? The Jewish people is through Hakol Kol Yaakov, the voice, the mouth, the prayer, the Torah study, the connecting with a higher authority, a higher power, while the ways of Esau is the way of the hands. And that's basically what the Midianites were telling the Bala king of Moab. And he says, oh, so if their power is in their, in their mouth, let me go fight war with them on their level. Let me find someone whose power is in his mouth. And he went to the infamous prophet slash blesser, cursor, 
and his name was Bilam, and he tells Bilam, I want to hire you to curse the Jewish people. So now we understand why all of a sudden we're having someone trying to curse the Jewish people. What led to this story? And thus our Torah portion begins with, he sent messengers to Bilam, the son of Baor, so now please come and curse the people for me, for they are too powerful for me. Okay, what happens? Bilam is forced to tell King Balak, and I quote to you the verse, Behold, I have come to you. Do I have any power to say anything? The word God puts into my mouth that I will speak. And so it is that every time that Balak is going to curse the Jewish people, out comes blessings, because those are the words that God bless, puts in his mouth. And of course, Bilam gets, uh, Balak is very angry at Bilam. It says, I, I hired you to, to uh, curse the Jews, and now you've blessed them three times. And then, just parenthetically speaking, to know that at the end, um, before he leaves, Bilam actually tells Balak, let me tell you what's going to happen at the end of days. I want to quote to you the great Maimonides. Maimonides says that this is of the only place in the five books of Moses that we talk about Mashiach. They'll come forth a shooting star from Jacob and a staff and a rod. He speaks about futuristic, a leader, and he's talking about Mashiach. This is the only place, in the, in the, one of the only places, or at least the only place that talks about it very directly. Um, in the book of prophets, in the book of scriptures, you're full of it. But in the book of the five books of Moses, this is, this is the place. Also, I want to just tell you parenthetically that one of the most beautiful prayers that we have, that we start our prayers with, and many of you know it in the song form, Ma'atovu ahalecha Yaakov, mishkinotecha Yisrael. It's right before Adon Olam. You should just know that that verse was actually introduced to us by one of these curses turned into blessings of, of Bilam. Interesting. What I want to focus on is one verse. Who counted the dust of Jacob or the number of the groups of Israel? Now, over here, there's a couple of interesting things. Two points. I want two questions I want to point out on this verse before we dive into our lecture. Number one, why the change of names? Who counted the dust of Jacob, of the number of Israel, Yaakov Yisrael, and he does that in many verses. As you read through the Torah portion, he keeps on talking about the two names, Yaakov Yisrael, Yaakov Yisrael, Jacob Israel. Why? Question number two. The point of who counted the dust of Jacob is to say that there is no number. It's just going to be infinite, like God promised us, like the sands of the earth and the stars in the sky. Why then does he go on to say the number of Israel? He could have just said, who counted the dust of Jacob and the group of Israel? Why does he have to say the number of? It seems to be the point is that there is no number. It's ad infinitum. The answer to these questions is going to open up for us the gateway as of how to to pick ourselves up, to rise up higher. And now let's start the lecture. Okay, for those of you who are familiar, the way we work in this lecture is I, I give a list of mystical concepts that we're going to talk about. And then after that, we go through each one, and which helps us come back to our modern day issue, our practical issue of how do we change 
the struggles. How do we change what we're struggling about? Not between uh, the poor and, and being able to feed, but to go to the next level. Not between, uh, you know, the rat race and being a mensch, but between being a mensch and being divine. That's, uh, that's all going to come to play when we uh, wrap up this uh, lecture. Okay, so now here's the list of the mystical concepts we need to explore in order to understand this lecture. Number one, the difference between Jacob and Israel. Same person had two names, Jacob and Israel. The second concept we're going to talk about is the difference between Shabbat and weekdays. The third thing we're going to talk about is circumcision one and circumcision two. The fourth thing we're going to talk about is purgatory, Garden of Eden one and Garden of Eden two. And then the last thing we're going to wrap it up with is counting brilliance. Okay, and now let the amazement of, amazement of Hasidus begin. Okay, so I'm going to turn around my notes because I want the camera to pick it up. I want you to see what the difference between the name Yaakov and, and Yisrael is. Do you see there the Hebrew letters? Yaakov makes up the word Yud Akev. Yisrael makes up the word Li Rosh. Now, Let's talk about just the practicality. Why was Jacob called Jacob? Why was he called Yaakov? And the reason is because he was born holding on to the heel, the Akev of Esav. So the word Yaakov means heel. And it's not just heel, it's Yud Akev. What does Yud Akev mean? The word Yud Akev means that the Yud of God's name needs to be brought into the heel. We'll see what that means. What, is, uh, what happened is just simply because he was holding on to the heel. He was the second one. He was the one behind. Now, the next name, Yisrael, was given to him after he fought with the angel. So he already conquered Lavan. He was conquering Esau, and now he conquered the angel. So the word Yisrael actually has two meanings. One is Sarakel, the minister of God. You're no more a heel. But you see the polar antithetical process that are two names with the second one, Li Rosh, unto me ahead. So Yaakov is heel, the bottom bottom, and Israel is Rosh, the head head. Now, what this represents is two different experiences, two different states of being of the Jewish people. There's the Jewish people's existence in exile, where our job is Yaakov, we're in the heel, we're in exile. But on the other hand, we always bring the Yud, the first letter of God's name, to make it happen. Yud Akev. So our, our goal here is in exile to remain with our Jewish identity and keep the Yud that's within us to be the dominant force of how we behave. But where are we? We are in the jungle of darkness and ego, egotism and, and, and arrogance, all about the concept of the exile. That's what Yaakov stands for. Yisrael, Rosh, Li Rosh, the head. That represents when we're in the times of King Solomon, the times of King David, the times when we were in such a higher level. So therefore, what we're seeing here is that Yaakov and Yisrael represents two different identities of the Jewish people. When we're dealing with the rat race, then we're dealing with the Yaakov, our struggle is to be a mensch, a homo sapient, and not to be like an animal. And then when we're dealing with Israel, then we're dealing on a much higher level. We're dealing in a state of being a divine being and not just a human being. Okay, so now that we understand this, we understand the two struggles. The Yaakov struggle, be a mensch, not an animal. 
and the the Yisroh meant um, struggle of be a divine being and not just a homo sapient. Now, this actually presents itself not only when the Jews are in exile or when the Jews are not in exile, but within your and my personal life, this presents itself all the time, such as the six days of the week in which the verse says, you shall do work. There, we're in the rat race. And there the goal is to be a mensch, to be a Yiddish mensch and not lose it. To understand that the same doctrines which control our family life and our shoe life also must control our business life, our vacation life. And thus our job is to always remember when we're in the cave, when we're in the rat race, the heel, remember to have the Yud. Remember to have God with you. But then there's the Shabbat. And what is the Shabbat all about? Shabbat is all about, this verse says, a day of complete rest to God. Some people think that Shabbat is a rest so that we can get back to work on Monday. No, Shabbat is not about what we don't do. Shabbat is about what we do do. It's a day with God. And that is expressed by important value of family time, prayer, fabrengen, to, to study words of Torah, to, to have moments to talk with your family of station identification. Who are we? What is our traditions? So what we really see over here is that the difference between Yaakov and Yisrael within our, within, within our life is very much the difference between the six working days and the Shabbat day. The six working days, our job is to go ahead and connect with the spark of God within each physical object and to elevate it. What that means is not just to eat, just to like eat with salivate with the, no, make a blessing before, make a blessing after. When you're sitting with another person, talk a little bit about what's going on in Israel, what's going on with the Jewish people. Talk about the parsha, the Torah. And that's how we elevate the spark in the food. Instead of bringing ourselves down to become an animal, a piece of steak, we bring the steak up to become part of the human being, the homo sapien, because it becomes part of our strength to serve God and to be a mensch. On Shabbat, we don't refine sparks and we don't elevate sparks. We're not allowed to. One of the 39 um, melachot, works, jobs that we're not allowed to do on Shabbat is borer. Borer is the word of refinement, taking out the good, the godly spark from the bad, from the darkness of the physical ego temptation of taste and, and pleasure. Thus, we now see that in order to understand what is the true definition of Jacob versus Israel, we need to look into our lives and see that there's a secular mundane part of our life, i.e. the rat race, i.e. the Akev heel, and there our job is to make sure it's Yaakov, to have God, the letter Yud, with us. And then there are moments where we go into a total different paradigm, the Shabbat. There's no rat race. There's no secular mundane pursuit or worry we shut that off and we go into our absolute Jewishness. Here it's not about just being a mensch, it's about being a divine being, being in a different atmosphere. It's Shabbos. Now, what is interesting, and we'll later see this, is that even though there are two different, different mind shifts, and you have to, we have to understand how we get from A to B, but what is interesting is a statement in the Talmud, in the Tractic of Odezara, page 3a. Only he who works diligently on the day before Shabbat eats on Shabbat. So it's impossible to just become a divine spiritual person. First, we need to be a mensch. If we can't be a mensch in the way we deal with other people, then there is no spirituality. 
So we have to first have and conquer the, the Jewish way of six working days. Then we go into the spirituality of the Shabbat day. Now the question is, how does, what is the service through how we become a mensch? How do we become Yaakov instead of Akev, instead of heal, be God with me in my heel? And what is the service through which we become a divine being? To understand this, we're going to move on to the next mystical concept, which is circumcision one and circumcision two. Now, most of us know the circumcision as the Brit Milah, which is to remove the foreskin from the penis of an eight-year-old, of an eight-day-old boy. That's how we know circumcision is. However, let me introduce you in Deuteronomy to a much higher and deeper level of circumcision, and that is called the circumcision of the heart. Now, there are two verses in Deuteronomy that speaks of the circumcision of the heart. One is in chapter 10, verse 16, and it says, You shall circumcise the foreskin of your heart, therefore, and be no more stiff-necked. So this is the metaphorical concept of the circumcision, where there's a metaphorical foreskin on our heart, which covers us and doesn't allow for the godliness to shine through, and thus we're stiff-necked. Then there's another verse in Deuteronomy, chapter 30, verse 6, and that verse says, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you may love the Lord your God. Now, if you look carefully, there's two differences between verse number 1 and verse number 2 in this metaphorical circumcision of the heart. The difference number one is that the first verse, it says, You shall circumcise. We have to do it to ourselves. The second verse says, and the Lord your God will circumcise your heart. It's not us, it's God that does it. The second difference is that in the first verse, it talks about the foreskin of your heart. In the second verse, it mentions nothing about a foreskin of a heart. So thus, what's really going on here is that the difference between these two circumcisions goes back to connect us to the difference between the Yaakov circumcision of the heart and the Israel, the Israel circumcision of the heart. The first circumcision of the heart is to remove the foreskin from the animalistic soul, the physical definition of I, the ego, I, the, the ego, the egocentric, arrogant, narcissist definition of I want what I want and I want it now. And my definition of what I want and what I love and what I fear is all about my ego. When I feel that my ego is in danger, there's nothing I'm more afraid of than shame and diminishment. There's nothing I desire more than grandiose and, and, and grandization. It's, it's all about the I. That needs to be circumcised. That's the foreskin. The foreskin is the capital I, I. When we can remove that capital I, that's the job we have to do. We're going to soon understand how to do that. And then there's the second one. The second circumcision of the heart doesn't have to do with foreskin. We already got rid of the foreskin. It's already about being a mensch. But the innate, the innate intrinsic just ego that survival, the center of every creation's universe is itself. And even when we serve God, there is this form of, yes, I did it. Those are fingerprints of ego. Now, that is a little hard for us to remove. It's one thing to remove the foreskin of the arrogant narcissist, 
but to remove that definition of I, not just there shouldn't be a capital I, there should be no I other than the extension of divinity, that's not something we can do. And thus, therefore, God says, once you go ahead and do your Jacob circumcision, I'll come along and do the Israel circumcision. And that's why over there there's no mention of foreskin, and over there there's a mention of God doing it and not us doing it. Let's go to the next concept. Because now that we understand that our job is to do the first circumcision, to get rid of the egocentric and narcissist arrogance of I, capital I, and then God comes along and does the second one, the circumcision of Israel, not just removing the ego and the narcissist, but moving any point of selfishness, any self-centeredness, any self-serving. It should be all about selflessness, about the other, about God, about the universe. How does that happen? So now let's talk about the next topic. Purgatory, Garden of Eden, and Garden, Garden of Eden 1 and Garden of Eden 2. Now, we need to understand that number one, there is an infinite number of layers to the Garden of Eden, one higher than the previous. That's what we're taught. We're taught that three times a day, the soul goes higher and higher. At every time of prayer, just like we pray three times a day, the souls in their prayer in the Garden of Eden, they elevate up to the next level. So you're talking about Abraham being in the Garden of Eden already for over 3,000 years. That's over 9,000 elevations. So there's an infinite layer, infinite, infinite amount of layers of the Garden of Eden. However, in general, they divide into two categories. And what those two categories are is the upper, the lower Ganeden, and the higher Ganeden. Ganeden Atachtan and Ganeden Ha'elion. Now, before we go into this, I want to just stop for a moment. Let's just go off record here for a moment. What is the Garden of Eden? Now, the Garden of Eden the way Michelangelo understood it and painted it and portrayed it, he did the best he could. He knows that Garden of Eden is a place of pleasure. And thus, what does he paint of? He paints of fine fruits, fine wine, and fine women. I mean, what else can he understand what pleasure is? Those are his finest pleasures. I'm sure he understood that in the background would be the most beautiful violinist and then music and then art. And yeah, but that was his picture of pleasure. Why? Because our animalistic soul, our body, understands that that is pleasure, what gives me pleasure. However, the spiritual definition in the Garden of Eden, we're not going with our physical bodies. Our bodies are returned to the ground, and our souls go to the Garden of Eden until the resurrection when Mashiach comes. So if a soul is alone in heaven without a body, there is no need for fine fruits, fine wine, fine women, fine, fine anything. So what is the delight and pleasure of the soul? And the answer is that the Garden of Eden represents an understanding and perception of the infinite light of God. Now, by the way, even on a physical level, I just want to share, the definition of pleasure, there's the pleasure of touch. That's the most physical. But then there's that which is a little abstract to that. There's music, sound. There's sight, beauty. There's intellect, just that, that, that pleasure when you figure something out. And then there's the greatest pleasure is when we figure out the human finite mind as any understanding of divine, godly intellect. 
Now that is what the soul digests. That's the food of the soul. The, for the soul, it's interesting that on the holiday of Shavuot, the day that we commemorate God giving us the Torah, the Ten Commandments and the Torah, we, we eat dairy. And our sages say, why dairy? For just as the mother's milk helps the body of the infant, the limbs of the infant to develop, so too the Torah is the mother's milk, God's milk to our soul, which helps our soul develop. So from that perspective, we're understanding now that the truest definition of being saturated, satisfied, fulfilled, delight, pleasure of the soul is the true perception, a true wrapping your head around, a true understanding, this is what my God is. This is what God's light is all about. This is what God's wisdom is all about. This is what God's will is all about. Now, without getting too Kabbalistic here, the difference between the higher Garden of Eden and the lower Garden of Eden has to do with the ineffable Tetragrammaton. The name of God has four letters. There's the first letter Yud, the second letter He, which is the first half, and then there's the second half, which is the letter Vav and the letter He. And in general, God's name divides into two. Yud represents wisdom, He represents understanding. Vav represents the six predatory male emotions, and the last hay represents the feminine mystique of kingship. Now, when we talk about the yud and the hay, the wisdom and understanding, we're talking about, let's just be practical about it. We're talking about the frontal cortex. We're talking about the power of higher intelligence. We're talking about the, being able to think completely out of the box. When we talk about the vav hay, we're talking about the emotional capacity, intellectual capacity of the limbic system. So what we're really talking about is two different understandings of intellect. Now, interesting that in Kabbalah, when we talk about the latter half, we talk about the emotions, we call them small faces because the intellectual capacity of the limbic system is very limited to within the box. While when we talk about the the intellectual capacities of wisdom and understanding, we talk about the out of the box, the large, the great, Gadlut. Now, to understand the first, the higher level of the Garden of Eden is the unification between wisdom and understanding. Wisdom is that sudden flash of a total creative out of the box thought, and understanding is what dissects it. Just, thus in Kabbalah, when we talk about the yud and the hey, the wisdom and the, and the understanding, we talk about the dot in its chamber. That is a total out-of-the-box experience. We're thinking beyond the rat race. We're thinking beyond me, self-centeredness. We're able to truly appreciate the gift of man, human, over animal, where we can contemplate outside of my own survival sustenance. When we talk about the lower part, the vav and the hay, the intellect which drives the emotions, there we're talking about an in the box. So you understand that the higher Garden of Eden is much greater of a delight and a pleasure for the soul than the lower Garden of Eden. But let's talk about what happens before we get into the Garden of Eden. So there is the stage of purging. And we're not talking about here, oh, the fires of hell and you shall be damned. No, in Kabbalah, we don't talk that language. In Kabbalah, we talk about the dry cleaner system. Because when our soul is in our body and it gets stained, 
by the egocentric pleasure of sin that needs to be removed before it can go into the world of divinity, the Garden of Eden. And thus there's the purging process. And not only that, but even any form of ego and self-centeredness, even when we did good, gave charity, studied, but it was self-centered, that needs to be washed and polished off the soul before it can go into the selfless divinity domain of the Garden of Eden. Now, what we want to talk about is how does it go from this world into the Garden of Eden 1, from the Garden of Eden 1 into Garden of Eden 2. And it says as follows that the way it's done is there is the mikvah. Mikvah is the ritual bath. There is the immersion in the heavenly mikvah called Nahar Dinur. That's what it's called, the river of Dinur. It says that the soul needs to immerse itself in that mikvah. Only then can it go into the Garden of Eden. And then there's another stage, which is literally, for those of you who used to watch Star Trek, there is the beam me up Scotty. There is literally a beam, a, a spiritual light beam that then draws the soul up to the next higher level. So there is the mikvah process in letting go of the past. Now, what is that? So just that you know, the Rabbi Isaac Luria, we're not talking about, we, most people know about the woman goes to the mikvah in lieu with her menstrual cycle. We're talking here about the men going to the mikvah for purification reasons as well. And we're talking about the Rabbi Isaac Luria, the great Ariya Kadosh from Safat. He says that it is so important to go to the mikvah on Friday before Shabbat starts. Because in order to go into the Israel, into the Lirosh, the head, into the divinity mode, you've got to be able to wash away the rat race, the homeosapient mode. And therefore, he talks about that process of going to the mikvah before Shabbat. Where does that come from? As we see, the soul needs to go into the mikvah of Nahar Dinur before it goes into the Shabbat mode of the Garden of Eden. Now, I wanted to show with you again my notes so that you can see this. You're going to notice there are two Hebrew words. The two Hebrew words that you see there, let me just make sure there it is. Whoopsie daisy, let's back it up. Uh, yeah, you see over here, there's the words over here, and then there's all the way over here. Now, those words have the same letters. One word says tefillah. Tefillah, not tefillah. Tefillah is prayer. This is tet vet yud lamed hey. That's the Hebrew word for immersing in the mikvah. Litbol, tefillah. Now you have the same letters make up a different Hebrew word, which is called habitul, the, humili the humility and the self-nullification. The only way to get from in the box to out of the box is to be able to have the humility of letting go. If we always want to be in control, the only way we know how to be in control is through our paradigm of reality. If we're only willing to sit within our box, our paradigm of reality, then we can never get out of our box of, of, of I'm sorry, out of our box of the paradigm of reality. And therefore, the way to go from level one to level two, when it is a quantum leap, an infinite, total different dimension to the point which antithetical of what the center is, whether it's I or God, we need to not go baby steps of, oh, I'll learn more, I'll learn more, I'll learn more. There's got to be this point where I just, I let go. I immerse myself completely 
into water. And water is symbolic in the book of the Rambam for meidat hatahor, for the Torah knowledge, for thinking about it not from the self-centered paradigm, but to think about it from the divinity selfless paradigm. And before I can go from A to B, I've got to let go of A, and then I can go into B. It's not like studying numbers, fractions, division, each one built on the other. No, that's all the same thing. But here we're talking about a total different shift. You've got to totally live here to go there. Self-centered and selfless is not a growth process. It is a completely different paradigm. And therefore, you have to have the tefillah. And that is what the secret is. The Zohar says, I want to quote you the Zohar, volume 2, page 211, column B. To forget his vision of this world. Without forgetting the vision of this world, you're going to be stuck where Michelangelo was stuck. You're not going to be able to appreciate Garden Eden because you're the Garden of Eden because you're looking for the fine wine, the beauty, the fruits, and the, all that stuff. Because, hey, you promised me the light and desire and the pressure and, and pleasure. So unless you can let go of the vision of what this world is all about, what defines the I, what is the X and the Hilo in this world, is the exact opposite of what the X and the Nihilo is in the Garden of Eden. What makes the six workdays tick, to be that predator, to be on top of the goal, to know what's going on with your competitors, and all of that, is the exact opposite of Shabbat. If you come to shul on the Shabbat, and you're working the way you work at the, at the six days a week, then unfortunately, I'm all too familiar with this, you know? You come late to shul, and the first question you have, okay, are we over? Because we're racing, we're racing. We don't know to where. But in the rat race, we're racing, we're racing, we're running. Where are you running to? It's Shabbat. You're not going to go to work anyway, right? And let's say that you're a Shabbat person that isn't even going to go to the beach. You're just going to sit home, relax, read a book, whatever it's going to be. Where are you racing? Nightfall doesn't come until 8 o'clock at night, something down there. And it's now 12 o'clock and you just walked into shul a half hour later, uh, earlier. What, what, where are you rushing to? But that's because we're living in Shabbat with the rat race paradigm of the weekdays we're trying to be israel with the paradigm of yaakov that doesn't work there's that mikvah process there's that process where you have to just tell yourself when you're dressed for shul and you come to shul for kabbalah shabbat it is imperative that you just give a sigh of okay we're done for 24 hours we're done and the minute that little hamster in the head starts running and running and running, oh, what's about this? What's about this? Oh, I have a great idea. Oh, you know, I got to explain this. Oh, I have this. No, 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 no. Shh, not today. Not today. Stop. Stop the noise. Stop the racing. I'm not rushing anywhere. I'm here. I'm fully here. We're right now praying, fully praying. We're right now hearing words of Torah, fully hearing words of Torah. We're right now sitting by the Kiddush, kibitzing with each other. We're not in a rush to go anywhere. And the only way to get to the Friday night from the Friday morning is by that mikvah experience, total immersion of letting go. Thus the land creature totally immerses himself in the sea, in the water. That is the secret of how to get from purgatory to the Garden of Eden 1 and then from Garden of Eden 1 to Garden of Eden 2. That is the only way to be able to experience it. You can't hold on to there and come here. It's just not possible. You can't be part of the rat race and experience Minuchat Shabbat, Onik Shabbat. It just isn't possible. 
So now we understand that the only way to go through it, let's go over what we're talking about here. What we're saying over here is that the only way to experience this journey is that we have to first be able to work the weekdays, to be a Yaakov, that when we're in the situation of Akev, when the situation of the heel, when the situation of the rat race, trying to make ends meet, always being afraid that I'm one step away from homelessness and starvation. So even there, we need to know that it has to be Yaakov, not Akev. Bring the Yud of God's name into your life. Live a Jewish American life. Live a Jewish businessman's life. Live a Jewish professional life. Make it Yaakov. That's step number one. Then from there, we then have to go to the mikvah. And going to the mikvah, immersing ourselves, is all about letting go of the rat race. Letting go of our innate predatory skills of the way we try to survive the rat race. And to let go and to go into Shabbat. Kabbalat Shabbat. Lecha dodi likrat kala. A whole new dimension. And then we realize that this job on the deeper level, we have to deal with the foreskin of our animalistic soul, which is all driven by the self-centered selfishness of narcissism, arrogance, ego. It's all about what I can get in this world. And even when I give charity, it's about me feeling good. And then we have to remove that foreskin. That is the first level of letting go, letting go. And then comes the second level, which God does for us. And he takes us from the lower Garden of Eden to the higher Garden of Eden, from the six weekdays to the Shabbat, from Jacob to Israel, from being a homo sapien to being a divine being. Now that we understand that, let's go back to the opening question. Okay? We understand the journey. But why does it say, by the second part of the verse, why does Bilaam say the number of... If his whole point is that we're not countable, who counted the dust of Jacob or the number of the fourth of Israel. So we do understand why he separated Jacob and Israel. They're two different experiences. Jacob is the work days. Israel is Shabbat. Jacob is the animalistic soul dealing with it. And the Israel is dealing with the Shabbat godly soul. One, they're two different worlds. I understand why he separated it now. But why does he introduce the word number? And specifically, when we talk about Israel, the higher concept. So here's an interesting Kabbalistic twist. The word in Hebrew for number is mispar. In Kabbalah, that comes from the same root of the word sapir, which no more means just number, but it means to brilliantly shine. This we understand too now. Because what we can accomplish is only to remove the foreskin of our hearts the hardcore, self-centered I, I, I. What we cannot do is remove the, spudge, the smudges of the fingerprints of the, I did it, I did the right thing. I did the right thing. I studied Torah, I prayed, I gave charity. So we're not even talking about the arrogant I. We're talking about a small I, not a capital I. But how can the creation step out of being a creation? I, I, I. It may be a quiet, low, small I, because I remove the foreskin of the big, loud, capital I. But how do I completely let go of self? Thus comes along the second circumcision, which is done by God. And that's where it becomes sapir. That's when it becomes smudge-free and brilliant. Now, in closing...
Let us now return to our modern day issue. And I'm gonna read this straight from my notes. To have a shift in our struggles, we need to have a shift in our paradigm of self, our relationship with God, and our relationship with others. There needs to come a point when we come, when we move from the six weekdays of the rat race into the divinity of Shabbat, and from the heel paradigm of Jacob into the head paradigm of Israel. There is a saying, the early bird gets the worm, however, the early worm gets eaten. Both get up early to go to work, the bird and the worm. Only that one gets eaten while the other gets to eat. What is the difference that leads to this polar opposite results of getting up early to go and work and live? The difference is only one. Whether one sees himself as the bird or as the worm. One sees himself as eternally the heel, while the other has the paradigm of the head. The caveat here is that we cannot simultaneously sustain both paradigms. And we need to go to the mikvah, where we let completely go of the old, so to step out into the new. And then, even after we go to the mikvah, metaphorical mikvah, the old habits keep, up, keep on creeping up on us. And again and again, we need to ask ourselves one question. And this closing question, if you want to just take away one, one thing that encapsulizes, encapsulizes the entire um, lecture, always ask yourself this one question. Am I going to be Jacob or Israel in the way I deal with this situation? Shalom.